Week 23, how do you see it? <laughs> well, we're continuing our study of Acts. Last week, we studied how the Apostle Paul didn't have any campaign but one campaign. It was staying faithful to one call to spread the gospel, preach the kingdom, make disciples, and spread the love of Jesus. And in staying faithful to that one call, it started to change everything. It started to change the economy. It started to change social things. It started to change everything. That the people were gaining income from the worship of false idols and false gods. And when Paul came in, he didn't even recognize the, the Greek uh, goddess that the people were worshiping, Artemis. Instead, he just focused on Jesus. And as a result, the people that were gaining profit from worshiping this Greek goddess at the temple, their businesses started to fail. And we talked about how if we would just be faithful to the call, the one call that God has called us to, to just spread the love of Jesus and focus on worshiping him, all the other stuff would fall on its own because nothing but Jesus can stand on its own because there is no authority and there is no power. That is only in the name of Jesus. Amen. And what the church needs to do is we need to unify not on trying to bring these things down but build him up and as a result they would fall without any effort from us and we're hesitant to say amen to that but that's what God has called us to do we have so many people focusing on all these things that are against God and we are called to live to a different standard and live above but God says if you would focus on raising those people up spreading my name, spreading the gospel then there will be an automatic result of everything not in my name will not stand on its own because your allegiance shifts. You hear what I'm saying? Your allegiance will shift. Well specifically we saw this happening in the church at Ephesus. And at the end of Acts chapter 19, what was happening in Ephesus is that they started to riot because their businesses were being affected. The economy was plummeting because people started stopped giving money to the temple for Artemis and started giving it to the storehouse of the church of Jesus. And a riot started and people got together in the Colosseum and they were rioting and they, it was so chaotic they didn't even know what they were fighting about. Sounds kind of like right now. Everyone's shouting for this, shouting for that, unifying for this, unifying for that. No one knows what they're unifying for. No one knows what they're shouting for. No one knows anything. And in Acts chapter 20, we come to the end of this rioting. Everything has just calmed down. And in Acts 20, verses 1 through 5, it says this. When the uproar was over, Paul sent for the believers and encouraged them. He said goodbye and left for Macedonia. While there, he encouraged believers in all the towns he passed through, and then he traveled down to Greece, where he stayed for three months. He was preparing to sail back to Syria when he discovered a plot by some Jews against his life, so he decided to return through Macedonia. Several men were traveling with him. They were Sapater, son of Paris from Berea, <laughs> Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derbe, Timothy, T and T from the province of Asia. <laughs> That's kind of cool, huh? They went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. We begin seeing the riot has ended, and it was time for Paul to move on. After spending two years of very fruitful and very faithful ministry in Ephesus, but now it was time to move on, because at, even though he was in a very fruitful season, 
He didn't let the fruit of that season determine him staying. Only one thing determined his stay or determined his go. And that was, what is the Holy Spirit telling me to do? What is God directing me? And even though it was fruitful and the church was rising, the church was growing, God said move and Paul said yes. So he, it's time to move. He's moving on. Paul stayed in Greece for three months. He's planning this long journey um, by sea to Syria. But then he finds out that some Jews were going to try to assassinate him. So he changes the direction and he's going back through Macedonia. And there's a lot I can preach on in those four verses or five verses. But one thing that really jumped out at me were some of the crazy names. One, and there's two that I want to focus on to show you what's going on in this traveling of companions. There are two names, Aristarchus, let's just say Aristarchus, 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 sure, we'll call him Arist. And then Secondus. Now, those names are like, well, what the heck is that all about? I don't even know what that means. Well, the first name is a name that is actually connected with the word Arist, uh, uh, aristocracy, aristocracy, whatever you want to say it. I'm not good at saying this stuff, so forgive me and don't, you know, judge me. But it was actually a name that represented the ruling class. Um, it was someone that came from a very wealthy, powerful family. And then you got this name of second dust, which was actually a common name given to slaves. And the meaning of it was second. And in the slave home back in the day, there were different rankings in the, in the household, and the, the top-ranked slave would be, would be named actually Primus. There was Primus, and then there was Second Dust. So in this companion with Paul, the church moving through, going about his third missionary journey, you've got a representation of people on an equal plane of someone from a very wealthy family in the higher-up government and the higher-up political system, and then you've got a, someone who can came from a low-ranking slave system, and both of them are representing Jesus equally in the journey with the Apostle Paul. All of the companions were representatives and ambassadors from churches that Paul formed while on his journey. And these representatives were higher-ups and what the world considered lower-downs. Paul did not define people who were worthy to walk with him by their stature in the eyes of the world. Not their accomplishments, not what position they held. He regarded them by one thing, by what their identity was as sons of God. And what the world may saw as unequal, Paul says, I understand that my God sees both of them as worthy. And because of that, there's a companion of believers of both high and low stations who were serving together, walking together, and unified for one cause, who were considered equal in the midst of the world that considered them unequal. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says this, The Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or his height. Y'all know who he's talking about? Y'all better know this. I spent about 55 weeks on it. David, for I have Don't judge by his appearance or height. The Lord doesn't see the things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? And there are so many times we reject people because all we're seeing is where they've been. And let's just be honest, sometimes all we see is where they're at. 
and we say, oh, well, I know they do this at home. They do that behind our backs. They do this here. They do that there. And God says, yeah, but do not regard them by that. If you would start regarding them by what's in their heart, maybe you'll realize that your call is to pull out of them what they themselves do not know they're worthy of. You'll pull out of them something that they cannot see and you will pull them into a walk that they thought they could no longer walk because you don't regard them by their appearance. You don't regard them by what the world considers worthy and I believe the world could actually even be used as church because the church has become just as bad as the world. We have all these conditions of you're not worthy and you are worthy and you, you haven't done this and you haven't done that and God's like, but have you seen their heart? And I know over the six years at Relentless, I've had so many people that have given me opinions about who I've let do this and who I've let done that. But I don't, I try not to, and do I make mistakes at times? Yes, I'm human. But I try not to regard people based off of where they're at or where they've been. I try to regard them based off of one thing. Where is their heart? And if if they've got a heart to serve him and give him glory, I will work through all the crud. And Paul is doing this, and he's got people that the world says cannot be together, wealthy and slaves. And the slave is holding the same authority as the wealthy rich, representing the church, walking together. Too often we reject people. We don't regard them by the standard God sees them. No wonder everyone wants to take out Paul. Because Paul is not living by any sort of worldly standard or code. And no one can figure out why his way of living is working. You know why they're mad at Paul? Because Paul's doing everything upside down. Paul's doing everything opposite. And his ministry is growing. And theirs is falling. And instead of going to him saying, what are you doing? They're trying to stone him. They're trying to kill him. They're trying to discredit him. And every time he gets out of it, because he's being faithful. Now, we're going to find out that, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying being faithful to God means you always get out of get out of jail free card. That's not a guarantee, and that's a blinders that the church has put on you. Walking in God does not mean things are going to get easy. But it does mean you will have a peace above all understanding in the midst of a very difficult time. And that's what drove Paul. He said, I don't care what's going on here. My eyes are on him, and that's where everything I need comes from. And he says, because my eyes are on him, I'm not, how do you see things? How do you see it? Do you see things based off of how the world sees them? Do you see things based off of the condition? How how do you look at things? Because how we look at things will change everything in our lives. The people we pick to be around, the places we pick to go into, how we regard people, how we receive people, how we push people away. How do you see it? Galatians 2.20 says this. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When you begin to allow Christ to live in you, You start to live by a standard that the world cannot see and that the world cannot understand. 
Because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher. Everything is different. And in order to understand those ways, we have to begin to walk with him so that his voice and his ways and the way he handles things becomes our natural. I've taught this before, but I think it's needed to say it again. I've I've said it many times. When you were born into this world, you were born into iniquity. That does not mean simply sin. The word iniquity means that you were born bent up and twisted towards something. Jesus says you have to be reborn. Because you were born bent toward maybe a lifestyle. You ever heard of sins of the father? Generational curses? You wonder why you're dealing with the same sins as your mama and your daddy? You were born bent toward, you were in iniquity toward this. And Jesus says, if you would believe in me, you would be reborn. And all that was twisted, I will make all your paths straight. So what it means to be free does not mean you won't deal with it. It means you are no longer bound to walk bent. It's your choice to walk a straight path that has been paved the way for. I almost fell. But what we do is God says, I've made the path straight, and we've got our eyes on God, but we're doing this knowing that we should be going that way. Why is it that we still go toward the iniquity we're bent toward even though we've been free in him? Because we're not walking with him enough to recognize his voice when he says, wrong way, wrong reaction. Take the thought captive. That's no longer you. And we're given authority to things that no longer has authority. Not because they have power, but because you turned a blind eye to where you should be. Satan has no power. Demons have no power except when you give, um, uh, except when you give way to their suggestion. How do you see it? When something comes against you, do you say, oh, this is the enemy? I don't know about you, but I don't want to give him it him any credit when something comes against me I'm not going to say oh that's Satan I'm not going to give Satan credit he doesn't get that glory for my downfall when something comes against me I'm going to turn to him and I'm not going to give the enemy the devil I'm not going to give him any of my time or any of my focus because he's suggesting that I'm still bent And my God says, no, 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 no. You are reborn in me, and if you'll walk with me, you are no longer bound to any of the stuff that you once thought you were bound. You are a new creation. I wonder how do you see yourself? Do you you see yourself as bent and twisted and messed up? Or are you actually walking in a new identity where you realize, wow, I actually do have the authority in Christ Jesus to make the calls of my life. I'm no longer going to blame this. I'm no longer going to blame that. I'm simply going to either walk in him or I'm not. We've got to get out of this passive Christianity where we think everything else controls us. Nothing controls you. God says, I have given you freedom and you choose me. 
and I have taken back the authority, I've taken back the keys, and I have given them back to man. So it is now up to you how you're going to walk. Is this okay? When you start to walk with him and let him live in you, you start to regard people and receive people with a different grace than you ever had before. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 6. After the Passover ended, we boarded a ship at Philippi in Macedonia and five days later joined them in Troas where we stayed a week. I want you to notice the narrative shifts. It's going from a, a, a talking about Paul to a we. What's happening right now is Luke has just joined back up with Paul and the people, uh, uh, the, the, the missionaries going on to spread the gospel. If you remember in Acts chapter 16, Luke departed Paul and Philippi. Now they're back in Philippi, and Luke is back in the game. If you don't know who Luke, Luke is, there's a book about him in the Bible, and he also wrote the book of Acts. So Luke is back with them, and it goes on to say this. And I remember Paul and them, they're walking, they're seeing things differently, they're equal, they're all carrying the weight of authority of Christ Jesus. And verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, we gather with the local believers to share in the Lord's Supper. Paul was preaching to them, and since he was leaving the next day, he kept talking until midnight. Y'all don't complain about my 45-minute to 55-minute sermons. He kept talking until midnight. The upstairs room where he met was lighted with many flickering lamps. As Paul spoke on and on, a young man named Eutychus, sitting on the windowsill, became very drowsy. Finally, he fell sound asleep and dropped three stories to his death. Talk about a preacher's worst nightmare. You preaching so long, people falling asleep, and they breaking their necks, falling to their death. It is said that Paul was preaching some six hours. Why? Because he sensed that there was a need for him to get everything out because he might not return. A little bit of a break. I wonder, do you make the most out of the moment or are you too focused on tomorrow? Let me say that again. Do you make the most or even take notice of a moment or are you too focused on tomorrow? The path that God has brought you to people to minister to them. Are you so focused on getting home that you pass the person in the grocery store? That, that you've, you, 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 you've, you've totally turned a blind eye to the needs of every person around you. Because you're focused on what's next. Paul said, I've got to go tomorrow, but right now this is where I'm at, and I'm going to give them everything I have. So he's preaching six hours. Well, if you go into the verb usage in the Greek, when it says Eutychus fell asleep and Paul went on and on, it says, it says Eutychus um, sitting on the windowsill became very drowsy and finally he fell asleep. And the verb usage in the Greek is actually saying that Eutychus fought falling asleep for a long time. I've seen some of y'all do that right here at Relentless. He fought it. He was trying to stay awake. And he finally fell asleep. Now, maybe it was a combination of a lot of things. It was a late night. It was probably hot. There was flickering lamps. There, there was probably oil burning of the lamps, creating a nice aroma. It was like the perfect combination. It was like listening to a preacher in a spa. Like, I mean, they, they, it was just, it was chill. It was relaxed. It was late. Dude was tired. And he fell asleep. And he fell three stories. And it says two his death. Now, I don't know about you, but this is what the church does today. If that happened, Jacob was sitting up there on the, the thing earlier, the, the balcony, and he does that because if you don't know me, I have a 
terrible fear of heights, which I'm overcoming. I'm getting there, kind of. Jacob was sitting up there, and it reminded me when I was preaching tonight. Dude was up there three stories, fell. I want you to imagine if someone fell, that ain't three stories. Is that even one? That's what one story, isn't it? Yeah. Imagine if someone fell at church. The first thing we'd do is people would panic. They would uproar. They would call 911. And then some, someone's not even thinking about the person. Someone's thinking, insurance. So, you know, someone's already making the calls. Someone's already getting the lawyers. Paul doesn't do any of this. He doesn't react by the circumstance. He doesn't freak out because he thinks he's about to have a lawsuit because someone died listening to him preach. He does one thing. Look at verse 10. Paul went down, bent over him, took him in his arms, and says, don't worry, he's alive. Verse 9, he fell asleep. Verse 10, don't worry, he's alive. But notice he makes a declaration that this boy is alive, this, this young man is alive, after he did what? Take him in his arms. Because Paul embraced a dead flesh, and instead of seeing a dead man, he saw a living one. Because Paul was not going to let natural circumstances move him. His first response was, Holy Spirit, what do you want, and how do you want to handle this situation? And the answer to a dead man falling out the window because of a long sermon wasn't be healed, it was what? An embrace. And a lot of times we, when we see things, we look at it through natural eyes and we respond to it with natural means. And sometimes we need to do what Paul does and says, even though this happened in natural, because I'm walking with Christ, I'm no longer going to look at this through my fleshly eyes. I'm going to look at this as someone who puts my eyes on him and says, God, what do you want out of this situation? What do you want to get out of this? How do you want to handle this? And we've come to a time in America where Christians are just as bad as non-Christians about it, where we never consult God about the reactions to natural things. If someone were to have a heart attack right now in the sermon, our first response would be call 911 and CPR, which is good stuff. But what happened to first response being, does God want this man healed? What, what, we always say, well, it was God's time for them to die. What if it wasn't? And the reason they passed on is because no believers are walking in the authority to say, I'm going to look at this with different eyes. And I'm not saying that, that is a, that's a blanketed thing over every case. But we have got to start thinking in a new dimension of saying, I'm going to think with new eyes because I am a reborn person and, a, and I am in my old flesh, but I am a new man in Christ Jesus. I'm not walking the same, and I'm going to start looking at things different. I'm not going to regard people in the same way, and I'm certainly not going to regard circumstances in the same way. Think about responses now. Protest. Panic. And just to be clear, before anyone tries to do anything to me, I'm not saying it's wrong to wear a mask. It's not wrong to socially distance. It's not wrong to honor guidelines. But at some point, we've got to understand one thing. 
That's not the first thing we should have turned to. Because what if the first thing was simply the entire church of a nation gathering prayer for five minutes as one church, and in a moment, COVID would have been gone. I'm not saying that's what God said to do, but no one thought about it, did it, or reacted in that way. We reacted naturally. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not saying what we're doing is wrong. But we've got to start checking ourselves, how, how am I responding first? Who am I turning to? What am I turning to first? And if you don't like what I'm saying, pray about it. <laughs> Say amen. Paul was not going to let natural circumstances move him. And I love what happens next. Paul embraces him. He, he, and then he, he, he's alive. And look what happens in verses 11 and 12. They all went back upstairs, shared in the Lord's Supper, and ate together. Paul continued talking to them until dawn, and then he left. Now, you would have thought if someone fell down dead because you preaching too long, you'd stop. But he preached until dawn. That's probably another six hours, 12 hours of preaching. Dude's relentless. Meanwhile, the young man was taken home alive and well, and everyone was greatly relieved. What was their response? The non-believers would have tried to kiss Paul's feet. What did the believers do? They worshiped God with communion, fellowship, and more ministry. Paul didn't get glory in that moment. God did. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen social media posts when God does something, there's more credit to the man that God did it through than the God who did it. Because we ain't seeing things the right way. We're not responding things the right way. How do you see it? When life comes at you, what do you do? How do you see when a bad circumstance comes? How, how do you react to it? What, what do you do in response to it? Do you blame this? Do you blame that? Or do you embrace the fact that you're reborn with some new eyes, with some new ears? Eyes to see, ears to You're given something new, but you're not using it. And your response is, God, where you're at. And God's like, I've given you everything you need. Romans 8, 5 through 10. Is this okay? Someone was kidding around the other day. They said if we ever had a coffee shop, we'd have a, is this okay, latte? <laughs> okay. Romans 8, verse 5. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. Duh. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your minds leads to death. Notice it says letting. Who is it up to that your sinful nature controls you? It's not the enemy. And it's not God. Who has the authority to let your sinful nature control you? 
you. Letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. If Paul did not let the Spirit control his mind, death would have been accepted. And what became a night of celebration would have been a night of grieving and sadness and perhaps even doubt would have come among the believers because there was no power in the room. But Paul was not letting anything control his mind except one thing, the Holy Spirit. Verse 7, for the sinful nature is always hostile to, to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have, this, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. Some of, some of you are believers who have the Spirit of God, but the Spirit is lying dormant because you haven't received the fact that you have the Holy Spirit. And you're walking around looking at horoscopes and buying oils and trying to get this look good luck charm and that good luck charm and reading that and reading that. I'm not, I'm not, just listen. I'm not speaking against essential oils, but don't put your faith in it. Just hear me out. Don't judge me. No, no one is saying, Spirit, who is in me, come alive and direct me. Remember, those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. If he lives in you, then why are you in a constant state of death? And we can die in a moment. This man died physically, but we can die in a moment mentally and emotionally. Something happens and we fall apart. Because we're being led by the wrong things. Maybe y'all haven't experienced that, but I've experienced that. Even in life today, sometimes I'm a pastor and I read the Bible and I pray to God and I worship God, but my heart gets broken. I go through painful times. I go through times where I say, God, where are you at? Even though I preach all the time, he's right here. I go through times where I question my call. I go through times like last week we had five people in worship, and I was like, we're going to put all these resources into the celebration, and, and someone was kidding with me today. We, were, we had all these stats up, about 100 people in worship, and we were like, we're going to share that with two people coming tonight. We had no idea that, that everyone was going to come. But you question things. I know y'all super holy and super spiritual, but I question things sometimes. Because in a moment you can die. But God says if you would be transformed by renewing your mind and take the thought captive, when death comes in whatever form, you can shift your focus from your sinful nature to the spirit that gives life to replace death's knock. Because you've been released from the chains of death. It's not when will God do it. It's when will I. What you live in will dictate how you see it. If you live in sin, you will see death in everything. That doesn't mean necessarily you have to be fully delivered from a sin. 
Because I don't know about you, but as a man of God, guess what? I sin. <gasps> I know I know that that might be a lot for you to take in the pastor's sin, but it happens. All of them. We all do. I'm not talking about you got to be freely delivered from sin to be able to see things differently. I'm talking about you're free from living in it. And living a life in the spirit so that when a suggestion comes and maybe you give in and sin, in a moment, the spirit will redirect you to say, I've got to go in a different way. Continuing on in verse 13, Paul went by land to Assos where he had arranged for us to join him while we traveled by ship. He joined us there, and we sailed together to Mytilene. The next day, we sailed past the island of Chios. The following day, we crossed to the island of Samos. It's like a Dr. Seuss scripture. And a day later, we arrived at Miletus. Why can't it have normal names like Savannah? Paul had decided to sail on past Ephesus, for he didn't want to spend any more time in the province of Asia. He was tired of it. He was hurrying to get to Jerusalem, if possible, in time for the festival of Pentecost. But when he landed at Miletus, he sent a message to the elders of the church at Ephesus, asking them to come and meet him. Well, when they arrived, he declared, you know that from the day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I've done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I've endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. I never shrink back from telling you what you need to hear, either publicly or in your homes. Paul's addressing the elders of the church. And he wasn't acting like a celebrity. And he wasn't expecting people to serve him or honor him. He said, I have done the Lord's work in complete humility. When you serve God, why do you do it? And how do they see it? Do you demand recognition or are you okay with always being unseen? Because I can tell you what God has called relentless to do. There's a reason we don't pay money at all to advertise anymore. I believe God has called us to be hidden right now. There's a reason our location is a place where no one can see from the road. And I'm okay with that. Do you compromise truth to win people's acceptance? Or do you speak truth? Do you accept the life of being treated? Will you accept the life of being treated as an outcast? Do you complain about trials or do you endure them because the only way you will see it is that I have one purpose. I'm here to serve God. And if I never rise up or move forward, as long as I'm serving him, that's the only thing I'm going to measure my success by. What has the church done? A successful church is hundreds of people and has a lot of money. But what if successful church is simply you were faithful with 12 people? You raised them up, and they went further than you. What did Jesus say? You will do greater things than myself. God spoke to 12 men and said, you will do greater works than me. And the church has been built on, serve the pastor's needs so that he can be exalted at the pulpit. We're called to be spiritual mothers and fathers 
and raise up disciples. What is the heart of a mother and father? I want my kids to be better than me. If we could all embrace that and pour into each other, we would start to see some shifts in our city. Because there would start to be some power that the city has never seen. And it's not because we went ran after power. It's because we embrace humility. It's no longer about me. This is what Paul said. He said, this is not, he said I've served with tears and I'm, I've been the most humble. I, I have served in humility. I'm not trying to win you. I'm trying to serve him. Verse 21, he said, I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike. The necessity of repenting from sin, turning to God, and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. How did Paul see it? I've got one thing to do and one thing to say, and it's all about Jesus. It can, it, and it cannot be all about Jesus if you are not making walking with him a necessity in the most important part of your daily life. And then, after Paul speaks this to the elders at Ephesus, he starts talking about his future. Now, in church, in meetings, when we start talking about vision casting, it's usually exciting stuff, right? It's usually, yeah, we're going to do this, and we're going to take our city, and we're going we're to expand, and we're going we're to grow, and, and we're going to... Look what Paul says. Paul says in verse 22, Now I'm bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except for the fact that the Holy Spirit tells me in that in city after city, jail and suffering lie ahead. What would you do if I cast vision for 2020 with that? Hey, guys, I, I don't know what lies ahead, but I know that we're all going to end up in prison by the end of the, the, the year. How many of you would come back? And let's get real. It's getting there. If, if God spoke to me tonight and said, by the end of 2020, if you keep your doors open, you'll all be in prison, would you come or would you say, well, I choose online church? And I'm not saying that all online church is bad. I'm saying when it comes down to the choice, are you choosing out of being led or out of ease? Don't, don't hear me wrong and I can't believe Pastor Cut. No, shut up. <laughs> I'm horrible. Why do y'all come here? <laughs> Verse 24. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for the finishing, the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Paul says, the only thing God's told me is when I go to Jerusalem and every city, jail and suffering. But he says, and I'm okay with that because my life is about one thing, the work that God has assigned to me. How do you see the call of God? Is it worth suffering for? Is it worth dying for? Or would you rather stay silent and comfortable in a temporary dwelling place called your life on earth? Not understanding that there is so much more. If we would start to, to walk like that, like Paul did, if we would start to see it like that, that all that matters is the assignment in our life, then we would take Psalm 16:8 on. I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. You want to know why you get shaken by a circumstance? Because you honestly don't believe he's there. Well, yes, I do. Well, then shift your focus. 
What do you mean shift your focus? Your focus automatically went to God's away from me instead of embracing the truth that he's right there in the midst of it. Because your eyes look at your natural conditions rather than the truth that he's with you, even if it means going backwards, even if it means going through trial. Well, why did God let me stop questioning and start embracing and just saying, you know what? I don't care how down I am. I don't care how hard this is. I don't care if I lose my job. I don't care if I get sick. I don't care what I'm doing. I'm going to simply do one thing. I'm fulfilling my assignment. That's it. And when you start to shift your focus there, nothing is going to start to shake you. Well, you can't say that, Kyle. You, you don't know me. I don't have to. I've been through it. You're, you're probably going through it right now. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to move forward. I found out earlier this year that I was getting more headaches because they found the growth right here where my brain tumor was. And for about one hour, I just cried because I was like, I do not want to go through that again. And after about an hour, God was like, would you just fix your flipping eyes on me? I was like, Jesus. <laughs> and I shifted the focus. I had peace. And my appointment wasn't for a month. But I had peace for a month. And when I got to the appointment, they said, it's just a cyst. That came from your scar tissue. No worries. But I can honestly say, even if it was the tumor, it wouldn't have shaken me. Not because of the reality of circumstances, but because I had this, I decided I'm shifting the focus. Because no matter what I have to go through or what I have to endure, I'm staying faithful to my assignment. The Bible does not tell you you will be free from all going through all the stuff in your life. But you can choose how to respond to it and how you see it. Will you press through and say, no matter what comes my way, I'm fulfilling my assignment. I'm not letting it stop me. You know, it's amazing to think about Paul's walk so far in Acts and how it's so much like Jesus. Because like Jesus, Paul traveled to Jerusalem with a group of disciples he was opposed by the Jewish people. Paul predicted his own sufferings. He predicted being handed over. Paul declared his willingness to lay down his life. Paul was determined to complete his ministry. He raised up people to do what he did. That's why he's addressing the elders at Ephesus. And he expressed his abandonment to all things except the call of God. And Jesus' greatest glory was revealed in his death. And you're worried about pushback? The world can try to push me back all it wants, and the enemy can suggest anything he would like. But I believe that my glory will be revealed, not by me getting it or grabbing it, but by me staying true to my assignment. How do you see it? In Philippians 3, starting in verse 7, it says this, I once thought that these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done for me. Everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake, I had discarded everything else, counting it all garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. He says, I'm not trying to become better by getting everything right. By my own standard. He says, it's by faith. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ, experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. Sharing in, I want to suffer. I want to share in his death. So that one way or another, I will experience resurrection. You cannot resurrect from dead places unless you die. But a lot of us are not willing to die. Die to yourself. Do you see it as loss or do you see it as gain? Well, I don't want to lose this. I've worked hard for it. But what if the thing you've given your life to wasn't the thing you were supposed to give your life to? When I got called into ministry, some of you have heard this many times, getting sick of it, but just deal with it. I left the scholarship for a $14,000 a year job that would have taken me through 12 to 14 years of medical school, housing included. And the first thing that most people thought was, you're throwing all that away for ministry? And I ain't going to lie, I thought about it too. But for some, and trust me, if you would have seen where I worked. (laughs) But there was a peace about it. Because God didn't take me there for that. And we're not here for this. There is, there is something that we're pressing on toward. But how will we see the journey? Continuing on in Acts 20, 25 to 27, I'm wrapping up. I know that none of you to whom I preach the kingdom will never see me again. I declare today that I've been faithful. If anyone suffers eternal death, it's not my fault. For I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. How did Paul see it? Paul said, I've got peace because I've declared and lived and taught the whole of what God wants you to know. You know why Paul would not have had peace? If he built a community of believers that just got encouraged when they came together. He said, I'm not going to leave stuff out. I gave you everything. I showed you how to live. I showed you how to respond. I taught you about Jesus. I taught you about the kingdom. I taught you about what you had to die to. I I showed you what you had to get. He said, I didn't leave anything out. And I believe that the church has lost its power and credibility because we've we've become known as a place to come and get encouraged. And people flee when you start to get challenged. Verse 28, he says, so guard yourself and God's people. Guard yourselves. Feed and shepherd God's flock, the church, purchased with his own blood, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. Now, Paul is addressing the leaders of the church. But there's one thing that we should all look at in this. Because it's not everyone's job to feed the flock. That's specific people that God has called for that, for that assignment. But before he tells them to feed the flock, he says, guard yourselves. Pay attention to your own life so that you can influence theirs. And I'm about to read a passage that I think is the most mis 
taught passages ever. Because the church has become this place where it's very, we, we, can't, we can't bring people accountable because, well, you need to remove the speck in your own eye. The scripture written there to give you an ammo to get out of being called out. Look at what the scripture says, Matthew 7, 3 through 5. Remember, what, what did Paul tell the elders? You guard yourself first. Read this. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see the past the, the log in your own eye? Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. It's not saying only deal with what's in your eye. It's saying guard yourself first so that when you deal with their speck, you will be with, with their speck, you will be well received. And the reason people aren't receiving when you call out their speck is because you haven't done a good job guarding yours. And they don't see someone that's coming to them with love. They see someone with so much speck. It's not focus on your speck or the log in your eye. It's guard yourself so that you will be received when God brings you on assignment to say, can I show you why you're not moving forward? Can I show you why you're depressed? Can I show you why you're hurting? Can I show you why you're not going anywhere? Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? How do you see it? Continuing on in Acts 20, 29, he says, I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. Remember the three years I was with you? My constant watch and care over you night and day and my many tears for you. He's saying, stop giving a blind eye to the issue at hand. We are the watchmen. Think about what's going on today. People are in panic. Business is struggling. No one knows what to do. No one knows how to react. We're fighting on Facebook. We're trying to give opinion. We don't know what party is good, what party's bad, what truth is, what truth isn't. But we're being called to step up and start watching out. That's our call. Our assignment right now, build the church. Edify the saints. Grow together in the best time of intimacy so that when we're released, we're stronger than before. Not take a pause. It's how do you see the opportunity? Verse 32, now I entrust you to God in the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. I've never coveted anyone's silver or gold or fine clothes. You know that these hands of mine have worked to supply my own needs and even the needs of those who are with me. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Paul did all this ministry, and he also had a full-time job of being a tent maker. So for those of you that are working full-time, I'll preach it again. You ain't excused from ministry. Shut your mouth and get on it. Amen, Amen Pastor Kyle. Verse 35. And your min let me qualify that. That does not mean your ministry is involved in the confounds of this house. Your ministry could be your full-time job. 
but start treating it as so and stop being depressed by the fact that you're going to work and start treating it as your assignment. That was for somebody. Verse 35. I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had finished speaking, he knelt and prayed with them. They all cried as they embraced and kissed him goodbye. They were sad most of all because he had said they would never see him again. And they escorted him down to the ship. He says God has an inheritance for those in him. But you can't get it if you live a life with an agenda to get, get, get. He said, church, your agenda needs to be one thing. It's better to give than to receive it. We have to live in a posture of always wanting to give. And if we receive, great. But the only thing we're concerned about is giving to the assignment on our life for the glory of God. And then Paul leaves these amazing people, the elders of the church in Ephesus. That was a pretty great address that Paul gave. But then in the last book of the Bible in Revelation, a letter is written to this very church. The place where Paul had fruitful ministry for two years. Who saw power, who saw a dude fall out a window because of a sermon and then raised back to life. This is a letter written to the church in Revelation 2, verse 2 through 4. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work, your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. Remember what he said? Don't tolerate. He said, watch out for the wolves. You've examined the claims of those who say they're apostles, but are not. You've discovered they're liars. You've done all the good stuff. You've patiently suffered for me without quitting. You've done it. You've done all the good job. But I have this complaint. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. If we don't fall in love with him and don't fall in love with each other as a house, Everything else is in vain. What good is COVID going away if we can't learn to love each other? What good is it to be able to come back together without restraint if we can't love each other? Why do we try to play this game of I'm better or one up because my opinion is above yours? We are the church at Ephesus. We're good at this, 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 and this, and this, but we've forgotten first love. Simply loving God and each other. We've got to start to see it differently. And if we would start to see it differently, go about things differently, living by the Spirit of God, everything will be changed forever. That's a church on fire.